Gotta love the epic walk-up music, right? <laughs> yes! Gonna zoom in on the picture of, okay, so that is not a planet right there, right? First time I saw it, I was like, oh, cool, a picture of a planet. That is the known universe. That is our theoretical, even bigger than kind of the known universe, right? This is what we think the universe might look like. And um, this year, I have gone down a little bit of a YouTube rabbit hole, which is very dangerous, right? YouTube rabbit holes. But I love those videos that are like the scale models of like, okay, so, you know, if planet Earth is this big, then, you know, you start to zoom out and you start to see, okay, then the sun is like, you know, like it's really big and it's got a Chris Nolan soundtrack going to it. And then you get the next one and it's even bigger and these super giants until finally I'm just kind of sitting there like, what? And you can, like, you know, read through data like that. You can be exposed to things like that and think, wow, like, I am an insignificant piece of, you know, like dust on this little tiny, like I can't even zoom in and do a little like you are here because we don't have enough pixels on our screens to do that. And I don't think that the image has enough pixels in it for us to be like, you are here. But we are in uh, the book of Colossians. So if you want to grab your Bible and open up to verse uh, 24 of chapter 1, cool kids, they start with the verse, and then they say of the chapter number, right? That makes it sound official. So verse 24 of chapter 1, not 124. Uh, but we're going to jump in there because in the book of Colossians, Paul is trying to get this church, it's a letter written in the first century to this church, and he's trying to get them to get their brains around just how great Jesus is is. How big, how transcendent and preeminent and all of those cool like million dollar Bible words that I feel like I paid a million dollars to learn. Like, but like these big huge words and, and we might use those phrases to talk about how like just great and big and impressive God is. Because you think about it, like he exists outside, are you ready for like the brain trip moment of the day? Like he exists outside of that ginormous universe, and I have no idea, like, what the scale is when we zoom out to, like, how God sees stuff, right? Because who knows? Like, that universe could be, whoa, okay, all right, Andrew's being weird right now, but, it, like, that could be, like, is there another universe, like, in the infinite space? Like, whoa, okay, all right, I'm gonna rein myself in before I accidentally start new heresies, which is also what Colossians is about, is not starting new heresies. So um, we're going to dig into that. Now, last week, Ben talked about how the whole like, beginning of Colossians is that Jesus is the goat. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the goat. And some of you are like, I am not saying that. Are you trying to trap me into heresy in the middle of a church? That's not good. No. Okay, now you got to be careful Jesus is the goat, not a goat. That's a whole other theology for us to talk about. But Jesus is the greatest of all time. And so we're in this series with the little mathematical greater than symbol because we live in a world that is always trying to sell us on the greatest, newest, coolest thing. And it's very easy to buy into that. I mean, I'm sure we all have that piece of technology and you bought it, and it was so shiny. 
until the next year they came out with another one and they just put a new number on it. They're not even naming them anymore. It's like the iPhone 12. Well, what's coming out next year? The 13. Like, well, what's coming out a year after that? The 14. Like, we already know this. Why are we surprised? We're like, I gotta have it. It says 14. Like, I need it. And it's interesting because we always want to go get the newest, coolest, biggest thing. That's just like a human thing. We want to go after it. And Colossians is a book that is all about recentering on what matters. The gravitational pull. If Jesus is the greatest, you know, we need to put him in the center of our universe. I mean, we could talk about what happens if gravitational pulls, like if we move the sun, bad things happen. I can show you many YouTube videos about like, if anything happens to the placement, very bad. So we want to put Jesus in the center where he needs to be. Now this morning, I have um, the biggest chunk of Colossians that we are going to cover in this series. So I'm not going to read every single verse in this, but we're going to try and hit all the major themes, um, starting with uh, verse 24 of chapter 1, and then going on through towards the end of chapter 2. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Are you ready? Some of you are real scared. I love that. Like, I can, I can see some fear in the eyes right now. No, I'm going to give you my outline, okay? The first thing we're going to talk about, so we establish Jesus is the goat, the greatest, the biggest, the gravitational pull. So next we're going to talk about who Paul is. So it's like we're zooming way in. So we have the zoom way out. We zoom way in. We're going to talk about what he's doing with his life and how that connects with, more importantly, who the Colossians are and what Jesus has accomplished and done for them. Their true identity, not like the church directory of all the Colossian people, but their spiritual identity, and spoiler alert, like that is for all Christians, not just for the Colossian church. And then we're going to jump in with letting no one disqualify you. So uh, before we open God's word, let's pray. Father God, we are here to recenter on you. This is the first day of our week. And we want to honor you. We want to open our hearts and let your word speak. And let all of our, our baggage and our emotions and the week that we've had uh, to get that out of the way. And just let us have ears to hear you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So just a couple of facts real quick on Colossians as we jump in. It's a letter to, go figure, the church in Colossae. It was written about two decades after Jesus, which is a big deal because there are some scholars that are going to tell you nobody believed Jesus was God until after like the 300s or after the 500s or whatever. Like there's all kinds of those stories. But here we have a letter outlining who Jesus is as fully God and fully man, 100% at the same time, which once again, there's some more universe like twisty mind, try to get your brain around that type of stuff. Um, and we have that within 20 or so years after Jesus is alive. And then Paul, who is um, unique among the apostles because he was educated both as a Jewish person and as a Roman, and so he was able to communicate with both of those communities, and he goes across the Roman world and starts churches out of these Jewish synagogues, and then he's in this town called Ephesus, and he sets up shop there for about three years. 
And this guy named Epaphras comes through, is a student of Paul, learns about Jesus, goes back to Colossae. Now we have a church in Colossae. And then some stuff starts to happen. Because we can believe things, we can say things on Sunday morning, and as spiritual people, we then go live out those beliefs on Monday through Friday. If maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Like, we, we gather around these beliefs, but then you go out and you start to, like, see how this plays out in the real world. And so the Colossians, they rallied around. We love Jesus. We know who he is. We want him to be our savior. And then they start to kind of go all, all over the place. They start to buy into some extra things. They start to go, okay, is Jesus really enough? And as Paul writes, um, this is what, what Ben talked about as condensed milk. Like it's this really condensed letter. One time I accidentally drank the concentrate of cold brew instead of like actual, like you're supposed to dilute cold brew. And I was so wired at work that day. Uh, it was not at Dallas Church, but I got so much done. It was all over the place. And that's a little bit like what like reading Paul is. Because every one of these words, we could like chase down the rabbit hole and find the cool, you know, Roman analogy and these imagery. And so um, the first time I practiced preaching through this message, it clocked in at 75 minutes. And I was told to cut it. You're welcome. Here we go. Verse 24. Now... I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. We're already about knee deep at this point. Just like one verse in, here we go. Like, look at the fact that he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. That's a contradiction in terms right there. Rejoice in my sufferings. And maybe you've read the New Testament a couple of times, and I would say don't let your brain just say, okay, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says we should rejoice in sufferings and just kind of breeze past it. But let's think about that for a second. Because Paul, in this moment, he's in prison, and he's writing to the Colossian Christians, and he's saying, in my sufferings I rejoice. Now in Colossians, in Philippians and Ephesians, Paul is what I would like to call the master reframer. The master reframer. Reframing is a term from psychology and counseling circles where it's all about the fact that we cannot control what happens to us, right? Did you know that? Maybe that's a world-breaking fact for someone today, but like you can't control what happens to you. You can't even always control what emotions come up in your heart and in your body and the way you respond because we get stressed in the adrenaline system and some things kick in. We can't always control that. What we can control is how we think about those things. We can control where our mind goes. And maybe it, it goes to one place initially, but we have to try and reframe it almost as if, okay, so we had that picture of the universe up, a second ago, and it's almost as if you start to make your own little picture frame. And we have the choice, like we can zoom in on that dark part of the screen, and like when something bad happens in our life, we can say, okay, I'm in suffering right now, and the world is a cold and dark and bleak place, and God must have never really cared about me in the first place. Or 
you can reframe. You can move the frame to a different perspective and go, okay, yeah, it's really terrible that my car got a flat tire, but I'm really grateful that I have AAA, or I'm really grateful that I've got a friend who has AAA, you know, like whatever, like, you know, you end up with. And we can choose to reframe. And so Paul is reframing his sufferings. Because in my flesh, now this is also a rabbit hole we could go down. What is lacking in Christ's sacrifice, in Christ's afflictions? And what it was that Jesus suffered. Now that's, that's a big deal, right? That moment of Jesus on the cross is ground zero foundational for what we believe and who we are as a church. That's why we have a cross on the back of our wall. That's why we have a cross on our logo. Some of you might have crosses on, you know, jewelry or tattoos or, you know, whatever. Like, this is an important moment in Christian faith. And is Paul saying that that's not enough? What's lacking? Where, and some traditions, and we could really go down the rabbit hole on this, and I won't, but like some traditions might look at that verse and say, okay, maybe, you know, Jesus's grace will get you about 50% of the way there. It'll get you about 60% of the way there, maybe even 90. And then we got to go find the extra 10 somewhere else. And what I think what he's doing, though, is Paul is saying that he is joining in the work of Christ. He is joining in, like, we worship a Savior, a God who died and rose again. And this is Paul's opportunity to participate in that, in the day-to-day. And so let's not, like, in Christianity, let's not be surprised when life goes sideways. Let's not be shocked that, oh my goodness, this has never happened to someone who's followed God before. They've never encountered hardship. I'm the only one. Like, let's not go there. Because if we worship a God that went through suffering, then maybe this is to be expected. And maybe you feel like you're in a season with, I love this word for it, afflictions. Nobody has ever said that in a small group when I'm like, hey, how are you? And they're like, I'm afflicted. (laughs) Nobody said that. But I can guarantee you people have felt that. I can probably guarantee you felt that at some point. And I, I have felt, especially in just this like last 18 months or kind of going through life, I have felt on the back foot. I have felt like I don't know what's coming next. I felt a little scared and a little anxious. And maybe, you know, you've got some anxiety kind of rising up in this moment as I'm talking about it. But let's not be too shocked or too surprised when we encounter the hardship. So Paul, he's going through um, this, this hardship and this struggle. Verse 25, right? For the sake of the church with a reason behind it. God is always doing something in the struggle. It's not divorced from meaning. It's not divorced from hope. But God is doing something in the middle of it. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. So Paul is not writing to the Colossians to create the empire of Paul. He needs just a bunch of people saying like, wow, he's so great. No, he's writing because this is something that God has given him. And it's, it's a stewardship, a burden, something that he has to deal with and to use correctly. So we are 
as Christians and Jesus followers, and even just a human on this planet, God gifted us so we can be a gift to others. God has blessed us so we can go be a blessing to everybody else. And that's a responsibility for us to deal with. When I was a resident um, at a church in, in Arizona, my boss one time gave me the keys to his car, and he said, Andrew, I want you to go get me some lunch. Okay, simple, simple command. I hate driving in traffic. Like, I really don't like driving in downtown Phoenix traffic. I much prefer, like, you know, at Dallas when we have traffic and there's like three cars ahead of you at the stoplight. That is my jam. But I was so stressed out. I take Joe with me and I'm like white knuckling the car the whole way. Like, you hit the bump and I'm like, I will not wreck this guy's car. Like, this is not good for my career right now. I was so scared to do right by my stewardship in that moment. And so Paul's saying, God has given us a stewardship. And so he's, he's working in that to make the mystery of God known. The mystery. Who loves a good whodunit? You like a good mystery story? Yeah, I love that. Uh, Knives Out, one of my favorite, favorite movies where you've got the like, you know, is it this person? Is it that person? It could be any number of these people. And then at the end, the detective is like, aha, it's you. Like we knew all along. Agatha Christie, Columbo, everybody does this all the time. We love a good mystery, but here's the mystery of God. Not necessarily something that's hidden for you to go find out. Maybe you've encountered like mysteries at work, like why the computers don't work or why you know, that person's mad or any of those things. You've got to go search that out and find the answer. That's not how a mystery in the Bible works. He's actually referencing the Roman mystery religions where they would say, that to a certain few, God has revealed what is actually going on behind the curtain. We have the secret knowledge, and you have seen YouTube videos like this, right? I'll tell you what's really happening in the world right now. And then someone with a cell phone in their garage is now explaining to you geopolitical movings. Like, there is this idea that I have the scoop on what's going on. And Paul is like, no, so the mystery of God is that everybody, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, is welcome at the foot of the cross. Everyone is welcome to follow Jesus. It is both inclusive and exclusive, where everyone is invited, but not everybody's going to participate or take part in it. And so Paul says, I'm a minister of this mystery. I'm trying to proclaim it out to everybody. And then Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he's going to summarize kind of the whole book. So let's dig in with this mini summary right here. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, Paul here is um, writing to this church that he didn't plant. He has not lived in their midst. He has not cried at their dinner tables. Like, whatever they did to do church in the first century, he's not done that with them. And so Paul is really polite in this letter. And he kind of is easing them in for, you know, the sucker punch at the end. Like, we'll get to that, where he's like, okay, boom, I got to tell you about this thing. Like, but he's kind of easing them in. When he writes Corinthians, it's like the gloves are off. He's just telling them like it is. But he writes to them, I have not seen you face to face, that all their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance 
and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, many of us, we feel like we need some more wisdom and knowledge in our lives. Maybe you feel that way. I feel that way. Like, where are they handing out the extra wisdom and knowledge right now? Sign me up. I will, you know, sign that subscription and get it mailed to my doorstep, and I will be so happy every week when I open it up. I hope it has two-day shipping. Like, that's what we want, to find the wisdom and the knowledge. And he's saying, you can't find that elsewhere. That's hidden in Christ. Like, Jesus is where we go to get that. And he says, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's a big phrase. Delude you with plausible arguments. And you're like, I also would like to not be deluded by plausible arguments. Well, good. We all, we all want to avoid that. But he's referencing something really specific there. Okay, He's got this thing going on in the Colossian church called the Colossian heresy. Turn to your neighbor and say Colossian heresy like you're a Bible scholar. Colossian heresy. There you go. You don't have to say like you're a Bible scholar. That's weird. But you're getting to the point. Here we go. We're getting easier with some of these biblical terminology. Now, what the Colossian heresy was is they were buying into some of these mystery ideas to go, okay, so you have Jesus, and that's good enough to get you started. That's like level one. But let's talk about how to get to be like a level two or a level 10. And the way you're going to need to do this is you're going to have to fast a lot. You're going to have to die to, you know, your, your passions. And you're going to have to live a life that is just really hard and Sabbaths and new moons and festivals. Oh, and we're going to go worship angels. Okay, that sounds a little weird. Like, and these people were buying into this Jesus plus mentality. Now, here's my guess about Dallas Church. I don't think that the elders and Ben and I need to have a meeting to discuss, like, how are we going to deal with the fact that everyone in our church is just ready to go worship some angels? We're not ready to do that. That's not what we're tempted to go do. That's not in our lives. But, 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 the idea of Jesus plus something is really insidious in our culture. It is everywhere. And we, we try to, they are trying to sell us on this all the time. They, I, I don't even know what I mean by when I say they, like, but like this kind of like, well, I do know, Paul's going to talk about the dark spiritual powers, but this idea that you need something in addition to Jesus is just everywhere. Maybe even, you know, you walk in sometimes like the Christian bookstore and they're like, well, you need like five ways to improve your marriage, five ways to do this, five ways. Why is it always five ways on the articles? I don't understand. But we get this Jesus plus mentality, and it could be any number of things. Jesus plus prosperity, Jesus plus comfort, Jesus plus my theology. When I was an 18-year-old beginning theology student, I felt like I knew everything about everything in the Bible, And I was right at 18 years old, of course, right? I had studied everything. And so I had this like Jesus plus, like you have to agree with me on all these little finer points of doctrine. And growing up in the church, I feel like I had a front row seat to what people did to put a Jesus plus on there. Jesus plus homeschooling. Jesus plus a political party. Jesus plus a social cause. And 
Guys, you can't. It's not Jesus Plus. There's a Disney Plus. There is not a Jesus Plus. All right? We want to follow the true Jesus. Do not be deluded by the plausible arguments. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Ooh, firmness. That's a good word right there. That is a military term of soldiers standing next to each other, shields linked, not to be moved. The enemy onslaught heading towards them, but they will stand strong. And so then we jump in with Paul talking about, okay, so this is who I am. This is what Jesus has done. Let's talk about what that means for you. Verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I love that word picture for the Christian life, walking in him. I think walking is one of the best analogies because you don't just go walking one time in life, right? You go walking every day. You walk all the time. Like we are walking our way through life. And when you go for a walk, depending on where you go, there are ups and there are downs. There are hard parts. There are easy paths. Um, I've been on many hiking trails sometimes where I've like tripped over roots and there's stuff in my way. And that's kind of what life is like. Maybe you've, you've felt that. You're like, I'm, I'm in the part with all the tripping places. This is hard. Or maybe you're like, this trail is way too long. I've experienced that, right? Where I'm like, my car is so far away and I don't see the end of this as I walk on my three-mile trail and I'm a really tough person. But like, we're walking in faith. And sometimes, even in the tough seasons, the win is that we get up and we put one foot in front of the other. As we follow Jesus. I followed Jesus yesterday. I'm going to follow him today. I'm going to follow him tomorrow. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Those are three words that I think are really important. Three concepts. Number one, that our faith would be rooted. A tree that grows really deep roots. We all saw in the ice storm just how deep some of the roots of trees around here were. And some trees, they didn't have as deep roots as we thought, and they toppled over. Well, we want our lives to have roots that go down so deep, that are built up, having a firm foundation, established. That word there is the architectural term with a really intense foundation. We want any buildings that we step into to have a very stable foundation. And what I think Paul is doing here, he's mapping on to some key passages throughout the Bible. Number one is Psalm chapter one, and it talks about the picture. The beginning of the Hebrew prayer book was this picture of a person following God, walking the paths day in and day out, and being a tree that is rooted in seasons that are rough, in seasons that are tough, in seasons that are easy, and bearing fruit when the time comes. And then built up and establish the architectural terminology, he's mapping onto what Jesus teaches. Maybe you heard in Sunday school the song about the foolish man built his house on the sand, wise man built his house on the rock. Good job. Hey, we got some people paying attention. 
yeah, built his house on the rock with a foundation that is established. And then the last thing he adds there, this is unique to Paul, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Remember how I said Paul is the master reframer. And in Philippians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, Paul is going to encourage them that in the middle of it, in order to be rooted and built up and established, thankfulness, I think, is a key to that. And this is even proven not by theologians or pastors, but by secular scientists and researchers and people in the psychology and counseling spaces where it is crazy what gratitude can do for your mind. Gratitude is like our, our weapon of the mind to combat like anxiety and depression and just even mental struggles of so many different kinds. We can fight it with gratitude. And it's proven that if you write down like five things that you're grateful for every day, that can make a marked difference in how your mental health goes. And so at the Bullock House, we play this little game where we will look at each other and say, okay, tell me five things that you like. And it's interesting how long it takes to come up with that sometimes, right? Sometimes you're like, okay, well, what are my five? And to some extent, we try to go deeper, so you can't just be like, yeah, well, you know, I like my fuzzy socks. Like, maybe you can be grateful for that right now. But, but to go deeper to some of the things that give us joy. I actually had to employ this strategy, this gratitude reframing, this morning as I got up, and I was feeling pretty anxious about preaching on Colossians, because my, my deep, dark fear is that I'm going to stand up on this stage and my brain is going to delete and dump everything that I know about Colossians. And then everyone will finally find out Andrew knows nothing about the Bible. Some of you are laughing because you know that that's not necessarily the case. And so I had to employ this gratitude thing and start to go, okay, I'm so thankful, God, for my daughter, and the joy that she brings me in my life and starting to go down these things and trying to reframe in the middle of that. Maybe that's a challenge we could take as a church. What if we were marked as a church that is super grateful? Gratitude can become the weapon against, um, against the struggle. I think the key to helping us be rooted and built up and established in him when our preaching team was studying through Colossians together before we preached on it, I was just thinking about, with that verse, I don't know that that's how I would describe my spiritual life over the last several months. I don't know that I have felt like I've got really deep roots that are sustaining me. I don't know that I have felt strong and built up and established. I feel like I have felt on the back foot and confused and anxious and like it's all going to fall apart at any minute. And maybe that's how you felt too, or some level of that. I've talked to people in education and in retail and just parents with children in school, and this just feels like a really hard season in our lives. And we've been through hard seasons before, and I mean, not to be all doom and gloom, but like we're going to encounter difficult seasons again. And so I wonder if maybe this is an invitation 
This moment, this, this angst and what we're dealing with and what we're feeling and the way that the world is not the way we want it to be right now, if that's an invitation for us to lean in and to grow our roots deep, and maybe that's what we get out of this season, is to grow our roots deep and to grow in some thankfulness. Verse 8, he tells the Colossians, to see to it that no one takes you captive. Nobody laughed at the joke. He just cracked a joke. He's in prison. Like, it's kind of gallows humor, right? But he's like, so I'm in prison. See to it that no one takes you captive. These people on the outside, he says, if you buy in to Jesus plus, he's like, you know, I might be in jail. But if you buy into this, you're in prison. You're the captive. Because there's so much that wants to trap us and to go after us. And this story around us in the world that you're not enough the way that you are, who God built you and, and gifted you, you don't, you're not enough right there. You need to have this too. You need to have the Jesus plus. And he's saying, don't buy into them. And he points them back. So the way you don't buy in to this Jesus plus mentality is that you remember who you are and who Jesus is, who God says you are. And then he jumps into this long section where he unpacks what it is that we have in salvation. Verse 9, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is 100% God, and you have been filled in him. And I don't know if all of us feel like we have the full power of deity, like every day. Like, you, I don't walk into Monday morning feeling like that. Like, I am filled up with Christ. And I wonder if maybe it's a little bit like with our cell phones and the car charger. I will go out on a hiking trail, and the GPS drains my battery on my cell phone, and so what do I do when I get in the car? I plug it in. I start to kind of recharge it. I want to fill it with the power. And maybe this is a season where we can remember the source and go, okay, this is who God is. This is who I believe that he is. So I'm going to make sure that I am connected to that. And it might not feel great today, but I'm going to trust in and I'm going to lean into. I want to be filled with Christ in the middle of this. Verse 11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. As someone who teaches the Bible, I feel like I have to say the word circumcision a lot more than the average person does. And that concept, like maybe we're doing a little bit of, you know, giggling about it or whatever, and maybe that makes us uncomfortable, but in the context of Scripture, the idea of entering into the circumcision was entrance into the covenant community. It was entrance into the kingdom of God. And what Paul says is that when we, at the foot of the cross, when we are baptized, when we join Team Jesus, and in Galatians, he really throws the doors open. He says, in Christ, there is not male or female or slave or free or any of the barriers that our society or socioeconomic or anything that we want to put up, but we are all welcome at the foot of the cross and you are welcome in this family. You are welcome on Team Jesus. We have a mission to go towards. And so let's be unified about that. 
let's not let, well, they think differently than I do. Okay, good. Like, they're thinking. Like, we're all breathing. That's a good thing. We don't want uniformity in this church, where if you ask someone a question, you get, you know, the same answer from every single person. We want unity, where the values and what matters is the same. We all want the good of our neighbor. We all want to worship God. We all want to do right by Jesus. And so we are given the fullness of God. We are given a community that we're a part of, and then we are given death and rebirth with baptism. Death and rebirth, where we have a clean slate, a fresh start. We start something new. Now, I think it's important for us to get all of this because there's an idea in the church, and people buy into it, that salvation is just, you know, that Jesus dies on the cross, that forgives your sins, so now you can go to heaven one day, and it's almost like this fire insurance thing, where you sign up for the fire insurance, and I'm good. I got it. Well, no, we've got this thing that happens in between our baptism and our death that's called life, where God is working in us and doing so much through us. And so baptism is this idea of a rebirth. Verse 14, he talks about the forgiveness of the legal debt of sin, which is a part of it. The fact that like, we have done wrong. We have caused brokenness in this world. We have had brokenness done to us, and that is a mess, and God is not okay with that. And so there was a way to pay for the punishment for sin. That is Jesus interceding on our behalf. And then, okay, you're ready for the next, like, master Paul linguist thing. English teachers, they'd be going nuts over this. So good, so good. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's talking about at the cross, when Jesus is disarmed, disrobed, put to public humiliation and shame in that moment, it did not look like God was winning. It did not look like evil was on the back foot. It looked like God was losing. And all the disciples, like, they scattered. They were like, yeah, Jesus, you're going to be the king. You're going to be the Messiah. You're going to run in and, oh, this is not what we were expecting. Now, I've done that in life. I've been like, yeah, God's going to do so much cool stuff, and I'm running in, I'm so excited, and then, okay, this is not what I was expecting. But in that moment, when all hope seemed lost, God was accomplishing the thing that gives us hope. For the joy set before him, Jesus went through that, and in his act of self-denial and dying to himself, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, the dark powers at work in this world. That's what that phrase means in the New Testament. He puts evil to open shame, triumphing over them. And so maybe there are moments where it doesn't look like good is winning in this world, and we can call back to hope. We can call back to a hope that we have in Jesus. And so if you have been given all of this, You have been given all of this from God. You are his child. He has made you the way that he did on purpose with a plan for your life. Earlier in 
the chapter 1 of Colossians, it talks about how Paul's aim, he wants to present everybody mature in their faith. We want to grow and to become more of who it is that God has made us to be. That's the end game of discipleship. That's the end game of Dallas Church. Our mission statement is that we are discovering God's dream as we follow Jesus together. And God does have a dream and a plan for your life. Number one, his dream and his plan was that you would know him and you would become a Christian, that you would follow him, that you would not be far from him. And some of us have a bad taste in our mouth from Christianity and religion. We're like, that's the last thing that I want to be. And some of that is the Jesus plus. Because some of the thing that repulses people from Christianity is when we put that extra thing in there. We put the Jesus plus in there, and they're like, I can't, I don't want to get on board with that. And sometimes people get so passionate about their Jesus plus thing that they start doing things that Jesus would never do. They start saying things that Jesus would never say. And so he's saying, guys, this is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. This is the invitation to follow Jesus. And so don't buy in to the Jesus plus because you have what you need. If you have Jesus, you have what you need. And don't let anyone tell you different. The Bible way to say that is let no one disqualify you. But the way you and I would say is don't let anyone tell you any different. Don't let anyone sell you something you already have. I won't make you raise your hand. But have you ever bought something that you already had? Waiting for you at home. Maybe you forgot about it. But like you bought in because they were like, well, you really need this thing. Or maybe you bought something you, like you don't even need. I told this, this story last service, and um, I was driving down the road, and there was a boat for $250 on the side of the road. And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Maybe I could get a boat. That'd be a fun adventure. Could take Melody and me out on the boat, little matching sailor outfits or whatever, like just having a great old time expedition. But here's the deal. I'm thinking about this. I'm like, okay, so the boat is only $250. I don't have any tow hitch or anything on my vehicle. So I'd have to go get that. I'd have to go get the trailer. Like, do I have to go get insurance? And all of a sudden, this $250 boat is a lot more than that. And Joe will never go for this. But I think how often do we get sold the extra thing? How often do we have something already? And then we get told, oh, well, that's not enough. You need this too. That's not enough. It's not enough for you to, you know, be centered on Jesus and get up and go to work and do a good job. Because we've got that voice in the back of our head that's like, well, you're not successful enough. You're not good enough. You're not skilled enough. Like, let's follow Jesus. We have Jesus. That is enough. I think about in Genesis, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and he tells them, if you take the fruit, you will be more like God. You will be like God. In that moment, Adam and Eve are more like God than they will ever be for the rest of their existence. They are imaging him better. They have not bought into the fallen story of the world in that moment, but they get sold on that doubt that this isn't enough. You've got to add this extra thing. And so as a church family, 
Let's be people that focus on Jesus. Let's be people that don't buy in to Jesus plus anything. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And don't let anyone tell you different.